Welcome to Sighs and Whispers, an interview podcast series about cultural history. I'm Laura McClaus-Helms, a fashion and cultural historian. It's really hot here in Brooklyn, so I hope you have somewhere cool to settle down for some time to listen to this conversation. A few months ago, I met with performance artist Penny Arcade for two multi-hour chats. We found there was so much to talk about, so much to cover, that the first two-hour Zoom wasn't enough. So we returned a week later for a second conversation. Unfortunately, I lost that second recording when an external hard drive failed. It was pretty devastating, as that chat focused solely on Penny's creative process and looked at each of her plays in detail. In this episode, Penny speaks in detail about the winding road of her life, family history, artistic influences, becoming a performance artist, her personal life and healing journey, in addition to her thoughts about New York and American culture at the moment. Really what we were discussing is her process of becoming, how she became self-individuated, which is really what this whole podcast is about. With these interviews, I'm seeking to learn from cultural creatives about how following their passions has molded their lives and careers, what choices they've made and where it's led them. I try to create a space where they feel that they can openly discuss the ups, downs, and zigzags of life, as well as the total magic and inspiration that comes from doing what you love to do. This quote from the back of Bad of Reputation, a book about Penny, sums her up pretty well. Quote, a runaway at 13, a reform school graduate at 16, a performer in the legendary New York Playhouse of Ridiculous at 17, and an escapee from Andy Warhol's factory scene at 19, Penny Arcade emerged in the 1980s as a primal force on the New York art scene and an originator of what came to be called performance art. End quote. The daughter of Italian immigrants, Penny escaped her repressive Catholic childhood in Connecticut to come to New York in the late 1960s and quickly found a community of fellow creatives on the Lower East Side. A performer who collaborated with Jackie Curtis and John Vaccaro, the teenage arcade became known for her beauty, vintage clothes, and bold intelligence. After a decade in Europe and Maine, she returned to New York, and by 1985 she produced her first of many performance pieces. Her most well-known work, Bitch, Dyke, Fag, Hag, Whore, was created in 1990 and first performed in 1992, partly in response to Senator Jesse Helms' amendment, banning the National Endowment of the Arts from providing funds for obscene or indecent art. Featuring erotic dancers on stage and a dance break with the audience, the show covers sex, politics, and self-censorship in lengthy monologues by Penny that are constantly changing due to the improvisational nature of her performance. Her works are noted for their realism and their truth. A break from the ironic stylization of the downtown performance artists who emerged in the 1970s. Forthright, comedic, and often controversial, Penny puts all of herself into performances. Up until the pandemic, she was still touring the world, and since then she's been very actively putting on performances events on Facebook. I hope you find her as intriguing and inspiring as I did. Enjoy. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. So how has it been for you weathering the pandemic here in New York this last year? Well, I think uh, initially between, I mean, I I was conscious of the pandemic coming in January Mm -hmm. because I have friends who are connected with China and I have Italian family. So I was already, you know, aware because of my family getting in touch with me from Milan. So I knew it was coming. So I was, I was very proactive and I'm an introvert. So having a lot of static taken out of my life was really great. Mm -hmm. 
until August. And then I was really, really productive between March and August. Mm -hmm. And then I just sort of like kind of had a collapse. But I think also the increasing negativity of the presidential election and, you know, the Black Lives Matter riots and it just was a lot, you know. Mm -hmm. And then the whole election process, then I had PTSD after the election, I think realize, you know, and I don't really even care that much to be perfectly honest. I mean, I think America gets what it deserves. I don't know, I've been watching this for a really long time. So we knew all this was coming, but I thought it was gonna happen after I died. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I thought it was gonna happen like in 20 years from now, not now. So I think we're kind of behind, you know, you know, like, you know, we think we're gonna run out of water in 30 years, but we're probably gonna run out of water in 15 years, you know, like, yeah, you know, when it's, the trajectory is a lot more dire or not, it was always going to be dire, but it's just happening a lot faster than, than any of us thought it was going to happen. And also with, you know, the culmination of, you know, like the racial issues in this country mm-hmm. and the class issues, which nobody wants to talk about. We now have an educated black middle class, you know, so they're going to be very conscious about what's going on and it's it's exhausting the whole thing's just on a day-to-day basis really exhausting i think uh, most of us feel that yeah a lot of people feel that way you know no matter what their political beliefs are i think everyone's finding it really difficult well, it's also very simplistic mm-hmm. i mean i'm supposed to after 50 years of fighting racism, I am now supposed to, because I have white skin, you know, dig deep and find the racism that I haven't uncovered in myself. I mean, a lot of that is just really annoying. Well, yeah, I mean, having, you know, gone over your work and, you know, I just was rereading, you know, the the transcripts in the book, you know, that was Semiotics put out. And you were talking about so many of these issues so long ago, you know, and about the racism and the classism right. and right. the fundamental Christian right and all of these things, you know? Yeah. yeah. I think for me, I think like <clears throat> the fundamental thing that I think I missed was I really didn't, I didn't really believe that sexism included me. Mm-hmm. I really didn't. I mean, you know, I was aware of it, blah, blah, blah. But I didn't realize how much, how limited my possibilities and my opportunities were by by my gender. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that till I was over over 50. And also the fact that I I didn't do myself any favors by aligning myself with the not-for-profit art movement. Mm-hmm. Because that is such a uh, it's such a bullshit construct that is really classist, and it's racist in the sense that it you know does hat tipping to uh, to diversity and inclusion, but it's not real mm-hmm. and never has been real. You know, I mean, we all saw 
our mailboxes fill up with, you know, we align ourselves with Black Lives Matter, you know, all these organizations that never spoke out against systemic racism yeah. before, you know. Performative allyship. Yeah, exactly. So annoying. Like, just want to slap them, every one of them. Mm -hmm. Do you have questions? What? How are yeah, we? I have questions, but I also just like it to be a conversation, you know, and I generally sort of start sort of at the beginning, like talk about yeah. your upbringing and, you know, your cultural background, which is also such a huge part of your work. It's right. Purpose yeah. autobiographical. I'm from an immigrant peasant, Southern Italian working class family, which means I'm from a displaced family. There's a few different elements in that story, in that narrative, many of which I've only uncovered since I was 56. So all families have secrets and my family had secrets and my family had secrets that like even my mother didn't know. So there were, you know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of confusion psychologically mm -hmm. and in that. In, in the arena that I grew up in. So combined with being the first American in my family. So all immigrant children are outsiders in their own families. So that's where my outsidership started was in my own family. But then also because my father was from the North and from a middle-class or even upper-class family, his father was the captain of many ports in Italy, but Savona was where my father was born in the mm -hmm. north, which was a very sophisticated uh, northern city. And my mother was from the south, from a very peasant background in a very um, remote area, like the Appalachia of Italy. And then she was put in, in a a boarding school slash orphanage when she was nine because of this big secret that I found out about my grandmother. My grandmother went to prison for infanticide, which I didn't find out. And I grew up with my grandmother. So, you know, who was a very religious figure and a very, a very odd personality. I was thinking about it last night and there was like a lot of People in my family as a child with their own problems, you know, so I was very remote. I grew up in a kind of remote, I always say I was raised by wolves in Southern Italy. And I think for somebody who was a very intuitive and, and sensitive and intelligent child, it was a very confusing environment to grow up in. But my mother was put in this, the first Protestant orphanage outside of Naples. It was in Portici which is the royal city. It's the city of the, of, of the Bourbons, of the, of the Bourbon kings. And she was raised with this upper-class family, the Santis, who were from the Northern Italian. Uh, so she was actually brought up from the age of, say, eight in a very kind of intellectually forward environment. So when she met my father, which was on a ship, where my father was being deported from having jumped ship in Panama and just on a whim decided he was coming to New York City when he could have legally entered the country. You know, it's very hard to understand 
these personalities. He was being deported and she was going to visit her mother for the first time because uh, she came to America when she was 16. She was now 32. So they met on that boat and they both spoke a very, very, very refined Italian. So it must have been incredible to meet each other. My father was 31. My mother was 32. Mm-hmm. Both of them were very glamorous. My mother was unmarried, a virgin, traveling with chaperones, a married couple. And I have all the photographs of that. Their meeting and their love affair on this very fast boat to Naples. A two, it was you know an unusual, it was a two week uh, sea journey and they met and fell in love. I was also the product of them, you know, and my, so I, I think till I was three, I was like a princess. And then I had this tremendous fall from grace when my father was institutionalized, probably the result of both his, you know, the thing that makes somebody jump boat, <laughs> jump boat in Panama onto a banana boat and swim to Tallahassee, you know, with their clothes on their head. I mean, you know, it's whatever my life has been, their life was super more crazy. So, you know, I also grew up with this kind of really striated early childhood. My life would have been very different if my father had not become ill, certainly intellectually as a child, like, you know, but then I, but I love that I grew up in this very magic, you know, ritualistic, Southern Italian witchcraft, <laughs> you know, really primitive environment. And I, I love that. I, I love that, that I had, that I was privy to that. You know, my childhood is, I suppose, until I was in sixth grade, I was kind of able to contain the pressures that I felt within that family because my father, my father brought my grandmother to America. He brought his mother-in-law to America. And my grandfather had immigrated in 1922. So he was cuckolded, which is a really big deal in, in Italian culture by my grandmother becoming pregnant by somebody else. And, and this big drama of, of this baby's death, which I guess was not out and out infanticide because she was only she was only went to prison for under 10 years. If it had been infanticide, it would have been 30 years, but this was all hidden and it was hidden from my mother as well. So, you know, until I was in sixth grade, I was kind of able to kind of keep a lid on it, but increasingly I was acting out as a child, trying to escape this, this pressure and also feeling very alone. Because I think if my father had lived with me, I would have had a kind of a source mm-hmm. for my kind of artistic. My mother was too pressured, you know, being a single parent. And she, you know, she had childcare from my grandparents. Do you have siblings? Yes, I have uh, three. I have a, a two brothers and a sister. I'm the eldest. So there was also me as the eldest. And it was also America in the 1950s, you know? So it was a a very modern period in a lot of ways. You know, I mean, my mother was told I was college material when I was in kindergarten. You know, I distinctly remember, you know, Miss Rosenswide, you know, telling my mother that I was college material. 
you know, I grew up bilingual, although Italian is my first language. And I grew up in a multicultural environment, which is to say almost everyone that I knew and went to school with was either first or second generation. I say it's really multicultural because what in what multicultural really means, which means that we ate each other's food and we heard each other's languages spoken. So I was around Greek children, Armenians, Syrians, Polish, Ukrainian, Lithuanian, Blacks from the South, whose families had come up uh, from the South to work in the factories in Connecticut. I, I was exposed to all of that. And it was a, a, was a very rich childhood, you know, filled with a lot of adventure. And uh, I'm also, I'm from an urban place that's a small urban city. So it wasn't a town, mm -hmm. it was a city, but a place that had a lot of rural elements inside the city. So, you know, I guess, you know, my, my environment is across the board, you know, these polarities. Was your father literary or, or artistic? Is that where you sort of, do you think you got? Well, when my, when my mother died, in 2001, I went with my then husband, Chris Rail, to, I had been, you know, trying to clean the, the place out, you know, of all these years of living of not only my mother, but my grandparents. And he handed me a small painting that I'd never seen before. And I pretty much had seen everything in this house because I was always snooping my entire childhood. And I'd never seen this painting and it was a small black and white painting of the morning after the crucifixion. So very bleak. It's just Jesus on the cross, Mary, Mary Magdalene and John the beloved at the foot of the cross. I thought, oh, what, what is this? And what am I gonna do with this? And I went to put it on a pile of, of other stuff inadvertently turning it over. And on the back was a letter written in pencil. And it was to me from my father. And apparently that my, my father, while he was hiding up there, I think knowing that he was going to be institutionalized, he had written me and my brother a letter. And it was very beautiful writing. And he said, I'm writing with all the love of a poor father for his children who are everything that I know that is great and sublime in this world. And when I read it to Chris, Chris said, well, now we know where you get your writing from. He goes, your mother doesn't even know the word sublime. There was some, I mean, there's a lot I don't know about my father. And unfortunately, I was really brainwashed as a child to believe that my father was a bad man and that he was a criminal. I mean, there was a very judgmental interpretation of my father. But when I was 34, I went to Italy and met my father's three sisters. And they really reoriented me a lot about my father, although I didn't really believe somehow, you know, it was a real fight to believe what they were saying against my indoctrination. But unfortunately, at that time, at 34, I didn't speak Italian really well. I mostly spoke Southern Italian, Neapolitan, you know, which is, you know, considered a dialect, but it's also a language. I mean, and at 34, I was pretty wrapped up in my own 
my own life was more important to me than, than, you know, really understanding more about my background, like most people. Probably I missed a lot of the subtleties that they were telling me about my father. But I mean, I did know that he was somebody who was very active in the resistance in Italy and he was very charismatic. I mean, you know, you continually hear about his charisma, bravery, his outrageousness, you know, obviously fueled by bipolar. I mean, he definitely was bipolar. Last night I was thinking about it because I kind of play it out a little bit in my mind to sort of reimagine myself if I'd grown up differently, you know. You know, trying to, I think I'm 70. So I'm very involved in the completion of character, which I think is a, one of the most important aspects of life, which makes me think very differently about end of life than our society has us think about it. And also coming to terms with my kind of preternatural youthfulness, which is also at odds in the culture that we live in, because I feel like I'm, you know, at the beginning, you know, I'm born on the new moon. So I'm very much about new beginnings, new beginnings, new beginnings in a culture that doesn't really support that, those ideas. Did you ever see your father once he was institutionalized? I only saw him once. And I think it was very traumatic. But I think I had been already quite traumatized by his illness, because he, at least for a year, I think, had probably been if not fully catatonic, but like, you know, not coming out of, not coming out of the house, you know, uh, in a major depressive state. It's, it's very interesting to me because actually I thought I had kind of escaped that when I, you know, I I had a, you know, like most people, I think of my generation, I had like, you know, serial relationships. And then uh, in 1997, I met Chris Rail who's a incredible singer, songwriter and composer and just an amazing entity. And we met and fell in love. And I thought like, and, and he was a real provider personality, you know, like along with being this amazing artist with a huge circle of artists in his own right. Like, so our two tribes of artists came together and create, you know, it was quite extraordinary body of people and talent. And Chris had pretty major depressive issues. Like he's got like a kind of composer personality, bipolar in that, you know, manic and depressive, you know, like, you know, he's the kind of person who like writes an entire song cycle in one week. That's like outrageously, you know, uh, accomplished, you know. So it was, it was very interesting that I kind of went through that again when, you know, he had a, a dark period which culminated with, with him ending our marriage in 2007. So I, I kind of thought I had escaped that, you know, this kind of legacy of being a child with a sick father. And, you know, all, all made all the worse by my, my, grand, my grandfather's interpretation of, of who my father was, because my mother uh, married my father in Italy without telling her father. I mean, in other words, I got the bill. <laughs> you know, I got the bill for all of these decisions and choices that were made before I was born, but I was not aware of that. You know, so like all children think that everything is their fault. I was somebody who thought everything was my fault. Of course, as a child, my reaction to this was not to like hunker down and continue to be the excellent student that I was. 
I went like all out, you know, like, oh, really? My father's a criminal? Well, I'm going to be more more of a criminal, you know? So I was a child criminal also, which is a, a kind of fascinating aspect of my story. But unfortunately, I was a child. So eventually I got caught and that kind of coincided with my puberty. I disowned my sexuality. I think I was very childlike. And I disowned my sexuality, although I was personally sexual, but I disowned it publicly. That combination seemed to really fuel people. So people really saw me in a very sexual way, which I think is very interesting because I was flat chest. I have been both the girl in seventh and eighth grade who's completely flat chested and gets teased about that. And then you know, when I was 16, I went into like being a double D, you know, so I've been both. I guess you could say my life is, is a life of paradoxes, you know, that I've lived that was combined. So I was like my criminal activities, you know, which were basically about breaking and entering and stealing money. And then, you know, I got kind of blindsided by girls at my school spreading rumors about me that, and it's an interesting thing because not only were girls, you know, spreading rumors about me as this sexual person who was having sex, but at the same time, there was another girl who had immigrated from Italy, who I had met because her mother sewed with my mother in a sweatshop, who had taken to impersonating me. I mean, it sounds crazy. I mean, I say these things and even I'm like, really? But at any rate, she had taken to impersonating me and having sex with like groups of guys and saying she was me, which is super weird. Anyways, I ended up getting, I ended up running away as the situation at home became kind of, I mean, I was impossible, you know, because I was staying out all night. I've all, it's something I've continued. It's like I, I delayed, I'm a procrastinator. So I would delay, delay, delay going home. And then it would be really late. And then I would finally go home, but it would be like two o'clock in the morning, you know, and I was 13. Uh, so created these problems at home. And then I finally just ran away. And then when I ran away, I found out that, oh, you don't actually get to be a 14, you know, a 13 year old girl who runs away and stays away from home for five weeks and go home. You don't get to go home. You actually get to go into the Hartford House of Detention. And then you have to go to juvenile court and then you get put away <laughs> and sentenced. And I got put away for two years. And, you know, through, you know, I've written about it through the miracle of a Jewish woman judge who recognized my vocabulary instead of getting, getting put in the reform school, I got put in uh, with the Sisters of the Good Shepherd, which was a monastic, uh, a semi-calloused, you know, order. It was a monastic order in that they didn't interact with the world, but they interacted with the girls. And those nuns were all very young. For the majority of them were in their early 20s. Once again, it was like 1963. So it was another, 1964 was when I got put away, August of 64. The, that was the Sisters of the Good Shepherd and a lot's been written about them. You know, the Magdalene Sisters movie was made about them. Once again, another paradox because they were 
when I got there, they were in a very progressive period. They were redoing the building, you know, was going from being these kind of bleak dormitories to rooms with three girls in a room, very pretty, very pretty rooms compared to most of the girls who were there. I was very intellectually oriented. There was a lot of space for me to be that person there that wasn't really available to me so much in the working class town that I was from. And, you know, there were some protections for me also because I was too intellectual for the bad kids in my town. You know, they get rid of her, you know, like, can somebody shut her up, you know? And so I, I kind of had this monastic period myself of two years of living with those nuns where I was introduced to philosophy and art. I wrote my first play there. Were you a big reader? I was a big reader as a child. I loved my library, my local library. You know, there was, we had a small branch in my neighborhood, Mm -hmm. which was like amazing. And then when I was, you know, a little bit older, I got to go to the big library. I always think of myself as a continent you know, because I have so many interests. Curiosity is my most elevated personal characteristic. And honestly, in one lifetime, I could not develop, you know, now, you know, I'm 70 and I'm going, oh my God, I wish I was in this head frame of mind. You know, when I was 30, I could have developed so many aspects of my interests. But, you know, life, life is very short. A lifetime is very short. So at any rate, I basically phased myself out of my out of my family by the time I was 14. Like there was no going back. There was no uh, possibility because of their limitations as well as my limitations. It's interesting because someone told me when I was in my 30s, I went to a psychic. I had always felt very guilty about hurting my family and alienating my family. And this trance medium had said to me that I had done something very good for myself by getting out of there. And of course, never occurred to me that there was any kind of a positive part of of that. But my entire life from being born until I would say my mid 40s was just a landscape of landmines. I mean, why I didn't die or be killed or you know, OD or it's funny because I suffer from PTSD. I have pretty severe PTSD. I went to see this other psychic. I went to see him like three years ago, but I went to see him also last year for my birthday. I had said to him, it must've been the first time because one of the reasons I wanted to go to see him was because of my PTSD and uh, I have night terror. So it's very hard for me at night. A lot of the choices I've made have been around protecting myself with this night terror, like living with people and a lot of things that I I can't do that other people can do. Like, I really can't walk along a deserted beach. You know, I can't go for a walk in the forest. I'm too traumatized for that. And actually, you know, in the face of, of how severe my PTSD has been, it's amazing what I've been able to accomplish in my life. Staggering, really. But at any rate, I had said to him, look, I just feel like I'm going to be murdered all the time. And I just want to ask you about that. And he looked at me and he said, 
Well, let's put it this way. He said, if you were 18 years old and you were walking out the door right now, I'd be really worried about you. He said, but all of that's in your past. This year, one of the things that has been one of the good things during the lockdown was that I have done some work on my PTSD by myself. I basically went from, I don't think people realize, you know, how much work it would, it would be to really undo PTSD. I mean, it's enormous. I mean, if you really focused on that, you wouldn't, that would be the accomplishment of your life. You wouldn't, you wouldn't accomplish anything else. And that didn't, that just didn't ever occur to me to, to do that. I mean, I've been in therapy since I was 31, you know, and have always um, been very interested. I'm very interested in analysis and psychology, et cetera. I could never really put my, my PTSD first, you know, that would not be a, cause I'm not a victim. I've never been a victim personality. I've always been a target personality, but this year, you know, I went from like not being able to go to sleep unless I had all the lights on in this room, 200 pound kitchen island pushed in front of my door. And I've managed to now go to where I just have a chair. It's symbolic. There's a chair in front of the door and I have one light on, like a night light on in my, I live in a, in a converted loft that has like a one bedroom. Mm-hmm. It's a one bedroom that was built by my landlord for me. So, you know, I, I've done some work on that because of of the lockdown, I was able to. And I think the knowing that the lockdown was outside too, mm-hmm. you know, that people weren't really roaming around and, you know, so that, that's been a big thing this, you know, this year. I mean, you can imagine just from this conversation so far that in writing my memoir, it's very difficult to write because my main reason for wanting to write it would be to figure out how I became who I am. Mm-hmm. you know, with all of this background. And, and of course, I've done a lot of it in my, in my theater work. Certainly by the mid-90s, a large part of my audience was being referred by their shrinks. <laughs> you know, I've always yeah, I was had... Wondering, yeah, I was going to ask, one of the questions I have is, was writing these performances like a form of therapy, like it helped working you? No, I, I was in real therapy. <laughs> my, my work was not at all cathartic. It simply wasn't. The catharsis had already happened. And then the work was the product of the catharsis as opposed to, you know, the catharsis itself. I did learn to understand a lot of things because I am a person who's very involved with the general public. And I always have been because, because I left home so early. You know, I was outside of my family very early. And the kindness of strangers played a role, but it wasn't really the kindness of strangers, but I kind of threw myself in with the public, you know, from very early period, even with my work, including my first, my first ever show of my own work. I didn't invite people I knew. I, put, I, I made posters and put them around the East Village and just satisfied myself with who came. And because I started performing at such a young age, certainly before AIDS, you know, before AIDS had done its cultural cleansing in the 90s, 
I had a huge audience of people who had known me as had seen me perform as a teenager and who had were interested in in my work they were interested in what I might do I think I've always been a very unique performance person you know even as a as a teenager because with the playhouse of the ridiculous I was allowed to to generate and improvise my own performances rather than to be an actress I had that relationship with the general public always and have it still so in the lockdown during the lockdown we immediately started doing four hours a week of live programming uh, on Facebook free programming and our audience was from all over the world you know every every time I performed there were people from every continent it was kind of amazing and exciting to know that I had formed real real relationships with real people mm-hmm. as opposed to you know the kind of audiences that a lot of artists have because they've been promoted by the New York Times or they've been promoted by this magazine or that newspaper or this website or whatever i think that you know as i've told people because people have asked about the success of my my online work since covid it's because people, I've always been into forming communities with my audience. Mm-hmm. So you can't just suddenly pretend you're doing that, you know, like, and people have tried, but people don't care. The audience has always been invested in me as I have always been invested in them. That is a very beautiful aspect of my life is, is my relationship with the public and if anything was cathartic, if there was ever a cathartic aspect to my work, it was in the audience's acceptance of me, you know, where I really felt compassion from the audience for the stories I told for me. So the audience had more compassion for me than I did, mm-hmm. had for myself. So actually the audience taught me compassion for myself. That That is a very beautiful aspect in, in the sense of what community can be, you know, which right now I think is, I mean, we're living in an America which is experiencing for all practical purposes a civil war, that even for those of us who sought refuge in New York and in an alternative lifestyle, that protection is not available anymore because the downtown art scene is and the queer world are all infiltrated by super judgmental polarizing factors in a way that you know I mean I'm somebody who's really got to develop my intellect and my ideas because of being part of that world that has now completely been invaded and morphed into something very, very different. Yeah, been super commodified. It's been taken over. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, whoever thought that, you know, it went from a world of lineage, you know, where you felt that you could be part of something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were people who were ahead of you and there were people who were elders and people who were accomplished, you know, but you did feel like you were, you know, part of it. Yeah. To now being ruled by, you know, Uh, 
these creepy young people, you know, who are very close-minded and very authoritarian and Stalinist, no refuge. We've lost our, we lost our sanctuary and our refuge, which I'm continually trying to recreate in small ways. But, you know, trends happen. And the East Village of 1990 was, you know, for all intents and purposes, was a very inclusive place that did have its own values and uh, that were different from the mainstream. And then that's all passed away. I mean, if you walk through the East Village now. Yeah, I don't recognize it anymore. (laughs) I moved to the East Village in 2002. Okay, so that was 18 years ago. So you, so that almost 20 years ago, so you were I was 18. Yeah, I'm 18. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, well, you've seen, I mean, you know, I mean, 2002, you know, it was after 9-11. Yeah. I mean, it was one of those points where everyone was already telling me that it was so much better 20 years before, but well, I mean, you know, in the couple of years, you know, I stopped going to the East Village in like 2008 because it, had changed so much even in yeah. that time you know yeah no I mean that was that was hyper gentrification mm-hmm. hyper gentrification started in 1999 but I mean in 2002 you still would have that was kind of the last hurrah that th- those years those few years you know like say between 2002 and 2007 there was still some fight left. Do you still live in the East Village or where do you? Yeah, I live on Lower East Side. I live where I've lived since I was 31. I mean, the thing is, I've always been in the East Village. You know, I came to the East Village when I was 17. And I washed up on the shores of, of the East Village, teenage Aphrodite. I often think about like, why didn't I ever move? You know, I was just very identified with the East Village. And Interestingly enough, it it has the same kind of demographic as where I'm from, you know, which is very East, my hometown, New Britain, Connecticut is very Eastern European. So it's just the the largest immigrant group are Ukrainians and Poles. So I think I must have felt, you know, very comfortable with that when I first got, you know, to Second Avenue and St. Mark's Place. Also, because I came into a real community, you know, the the community that I came into, the artistic community that I came into, you know, I was there from when I was 17 till now, you know, to to the scraps of it that are left. And and I become one of the, the biggest scraps left. You know, I was never trying to rush ahead. I think that's one of the more interesting things about me is that, you know, it took me a really long time to grow up and I'm not grown up yet. You know, I'm still in the process of growing up. And I believe that we have these different parts of ourselves, the child, the adolescent, and the adult that develop at different points. Like we don't completely lose our childhood we don't completely lose our adolescence and we don't completely even you know manifest our adulthood i mean not the way people think that they do or they 
the idea in the Bible of putting aside childish things. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. Well, no, I still speak as a child. You know, that part of me is still alive and well and developing. You know, I'm not trying to hold on to it and be babyish or anything, but I'm not going to pretend that that part of me doesn't still live. It does still live and informs me as it's only a child can of these aspects of our life. And that going back to what I was talking about earlier about the end of life being the completion of character. It's like the big roundup, you know, you, like I've been on a journey of investigation my entire life. And then you like, you get to be 70 and you're like, Hey, like, you know, we need to wrap this up here. You know what I mean? Like, are you going to leave in an open-ended way without neatly tying up like what you've learned, what, you know, what you've accomplished, blah, 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 blah. I mean, it's so funny, like, you know, left to one's own devices because I've lived alone since 20, since 2008. So that is 12, 12 years. And of course, when you live alone, you know, you can just do whatever you want. During lockdown, I had like really, because I'm never home, you know, I'm always touring and I'm always out, you know, I'm, I'm not a home, I'm, I'm not a homebody, although I long to be a homebody, you know, because uh, I'm a triple cancer, so I'm very kind of home oriented. But I also realized that, you know, I never thought about it, because you know, when you read astrology forever and ever, and it says, you know, the crab carries their house on their back. And I realized just recently that I certainly do, you know, because I'm always home, because I'm always with myself, I am home. But I'm also like this incredible collector of things. I'm always at war with my desire to be a minimalist, which is really hysterically funny if you could see how much stuff is in this house. I've wondered if I might prepare for my death by getting rid of stuff. And, you know, I have that part of a thought that I have of like making my space really empty, like getting everything down to the essential. It is an idea that I've had. It remains to be seen if I will actually do it. As a fellow collector, I've sort of given up on the at least for now, given up on the idea of being a minimalist. Yeah, I know. I could tell you at 37, I had one-tenth of what I have now. And I've always been a collector. And of course, you know, in the 80s, and still now you can, it, it, it is, you know, my eagle eye sees it. But, you know, New York's always been a treasure trove of people thro throwing mm -hmm. stuff out. And I, everything that I had used to come from the street because I had no money to speak of. It's kind of funny. My lack of income has has never prevented me from purchasing anything I want. And I am a real shopper. I prefer to call it hunter-gatherer. I kind of went really nuts since August, around July, and it kind of coincided. I didn't really pay a lot of attention to this because you know, I'm a, an information gatherer, but I had this big Jupiter transit of mm -hmm. expansion. And it said, you know, that you have to be careful because you're going to want to spend a lot of money and get a lot of stuff. And that's exactly what I did. Earlier, you mentioned the fact that you, you said you were an introvert. 
you know, I consider myself an introvert and I can't imagine being on stage like the way you have been on stage. Did you always, I mean, from the moment you sort of got together with the Playhouse of the Ridiculous, did you feel comfortable? Well, I think one of the key elements is that I'm kind of a team player. Like I said, you know, I'm a strange mix of, I'm a paradox because I'm, I'm very, very shy. And then I'm very, very bold. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm never in, in charge of which aspect of my personality is going to be leading. You know, I'm a very timid person, which nobody believes, but I live with great timidity and meekness. But I think that quite possibly that's how people become bold and become assertive and aggressive is pushing against a natural characteristic. I've always been a leader as a child, you know, of a you know, group of children. I had the Help Your Neighbor Club when I was 10, you know, painted on my, on my garage over the door, Help Your Neighbor. Yeah, I always kind of wanted to stand out, even though I was very tremulous about it. Like, I've never been like an egomaniac, although people think I am. I've never had that kind of privileged sense of, I deserve to be the center of attention. I'm not like that. I'm more like the kind of freaky kid that's from some kind of an uh, interior engine of self-expression. You know, I was somebody that for many years didn't perform. Even as it, before I found the Playhouse of the Ridiculous, I would always be friends with somebody who was very extroverted and who performed, you know, and I'd be like the sidekick. And I've done that a few times in my life. I did it in my early 30s before I uh, started making my own work with a singer named Dee Archer, who's a great rock and roll singer. And I just let her be the performer. And I was like her sidekick. And I'd go to every gig and be in the audience and, you know, give her my analysis afterwards. And then I was just talking to her son who lives in Shanghai and has like a very upscale restaurant and nightclub owns them. He's like 31 or something. Cody, who's a friend of mine. You know, I'm friends with him, like actual friends. And then I'm friends with his mother, who's a year older than me. So I have quite a range of who I can be friends with. I was telling him that my relationship with his mother was very key in my performing because once she left New York and stopped performing and went into the mobile phone industry, then I was, then I had to do it. You know, it's a very important aspect. I am a person who protege is not the right word, but I do spend time in gestation. And also my life has gone very full circle because I've started singing again. So in the 80s, I was singing and doing, my performances were made up of singing and doing character work and then pretty quickly talking directly to the audience, mm-hmm. you know? And I like, I know why I, I stopped singing, you know, 1980, at the end of 88. I also am somebody that, you know, like in the 70s, everybody wanted me, people around me, 
you know, wanted me to get a record deal and they wanted me to be a singer. And I was like, well, you know, Janis Joplin exists and Aretha Franklin exists. Why would I do this? I wasn't going to be a poet because Patty was a poet. And Patty Smith was, was my friend and was a big influence on me as a young girl, like as a 19, 20 year old, she was like four years older than me. Like I'm kind of a younger type person and she was kind of an older type person. She and I had talked about doing music. And at one point there was a whole thing that Patty and I were gonna do a band. Actually, Steve Paul, who was a pretty famous um, manager, sent a telegram from Jimi Hendrix's funeral to Max's Kansas City to me at Max's telling me not to sign with anybody else, which is pretty funny. You know, in 1971, I left. I went on this theater tour with John Vaccaro with the Playhouse of the Ridiculous. And Patty encouraged me to go. She was like, we're just slaves, man. But, you know, Patty was at a different point in development. And I have an amazing five-page letter from her that she wrote me when I was in Amsterdam, when I wrote her to tell her I wasn't coming back to New York and that everyone was telling me that I was, that my life was tragic if I didn't go back to New York and have a career, which I didn't even know I had a career. I didn't understand because I was never socialized. Like it's taken years for me to become socialized. And I've really only become socialized I would say in the past 15 years, I just didn't have the orientation. I missed the orientation. So it's, it's interesting, you know, um, all of these kind of full circle things. Because, you know, a lot of the people that I know, their identities were forged in the 70s, you know, and they've never really emerged out of that identity, mm-hmm. you know, whereas my identity was forged every decade of my life. And it's, in, and it's, it's an interesting aspect. And I, I saw Patty by accident in October. Did you see Longing Last Longer? Have you seen that show? No. Oh, well, you should go on my Patreon. Mm-hmm. It's by donation and a lot of shows are there. And you should, you should watch Longing Last Longer. I think you'd be fascinated by that show. In it, I have a whole section about New York uh, that I do with um, against Van Morrison's uh, song Ballerina. And I, and I talk about how people keep coming up to me uh, when people were coming up to me uh, pre-COVID saying, oh, I read about you in Patti Smith's book, Just Kids. And I say, well, you read my name in Patty's book because she doesn't really talk about me or, or our relationship at that time. Anyways, I did that section. In October, there was a uh, gardens, a garden-wide East Village event. And they asked me if I would do a reading or performance. And so I said, yes. And I, I as always, when I do a one-off, I improvise. I very rarely know what I'm gonna do, uh, but I had brought the pages of the script of Ballerina with me. And I thought, well, if I don't 
if I run out of something, I'll do, you know, I'll do this, you know. And I ended up doing it. In that section, I say, when I tell people what I miss about New York, people think I'm talking about my past. They think I'm talking about the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, a past that's been glorified to them. Like in Patti Smith's book, Just Kids, people come up to me on the street and they say, oh, Penny Arcade, I read about you in Patti Smith's book, Just Kids. And I say, well, you read my name in Patti's book. They associate me with that lost glory. But you see, I was kept underground and I equate those years only with glorious defeat. I guess you could say I outrambowed Patty. So I do this section, I finish, I go outside and a lot of people want to talk to me. So I'm talking to them and I see a girl who had been kind of really greatly focused on me while I was performing, a young girl, she looks like to be 20. And I saw her watching me from afar and I thought, oh, maybe she's too shy to talk to me. And I'm always looking at that person who might be me and I went over to her and actually turned out I had nothing to say to her. She, you know, she was hiding a Starbucks cup. I'm like, what are you doing? And she goes, well, I didn't want you to see that I have a Starbucks. I'm like, you know, really, I kind of stopped worrying about Starbucks in 1996. You know, it's kind of like, who cares? That fight was lost. And then I was just standing there and I looked like across the heads of, she was with a couple of other girls and I kind of like thought, oh, I can go home. I'm not needed here. And I looked over this girl in front of me shoulder and I saw Lenny Kay and then very quickly saw that he was sitting with Patty at an outdoor restaurant across the street from where I was performing. And I was performing with a mic. So I was really loud, you know, and I was like, oh my God. Like, this is crazy. And I was kind of like, you know, like I say, I'm a timid person. I was like, oh my God. You know, like Patty heard this. I was like, okay. I marched across the street and I said, well, Patty, that was pretty synchronistic. Lenny was like barely breathing. He was just like <laughs> a mountain sitting there. And Patty said, oh man, you were great. I heard the whole thing. I knew it was you right away, right away. I knew your voice, man. And I was like, okay, you know, like, okay. And then she told me that I, that I had reminded her of John Giorno. And she and I had last January performed together at John Giorno's memorial. And she had acknowledged me a lot at that, that day in a way that, you know, we hadn't really communicated very much in the past 20 years before that. We'd see each other, but it was like a, an awkward and uncomfortable. And I said to her, I said, she said that to me about John Giorno. And John, and I said, you know, it's so amazing you say that. I said, because I always tell people that, you know, I've been inspired by a lot of people, but I was only influenced by a couple of people. I said, John Giorno is one of the people who really influenced me. She said, you have, she goes, you have the same energy like that ability that, cause I am, I guess that's like a number one aspect is my in-person magnetism. And then I looked at her and I said, you know, I was, I was very influenced by you too, not in my work, but in being because, uh, and Patty was like, nah, we influenced each other. 
And I was like, yeah, I said, but you know, you were like four years older and you'd been to college and we were both working class girls in a sea of middle-class girls and debutantes. You know, there, there weren't any people like me and Patty, you know, in that scene. If they were working class girls and they were maybe strippers or, you know, the girlfriends of rock, of rock stars. But Patty and I were both like people on a mission, you know, and Patty had orientation that I did not. And she had family that I did not. Her family was extremely supportive of her. And I didn't have that. And she had Robert who was like completely supportive of her. I didn't have that. But Patty was very supportive of me. So I had that from her. So it was a very interesting kind of full circle there too. Because, you know, you find out as you get older, a lot of people don't retain their memory. And I've had people who were very important in my life who, as their memories deteriorate, don't really remember that aspect. I'm thinking of Larissa. Larissa is a very famous. Uh, she was a muse for Gautier, but she was in the late 60s. She was like considered the Coco Chanel of rock and roll. She made all these amazing leather leather coats for Miles Davis and uh, Jimi Hendrix and stuff. And she was Belgian, but Russian. And she was probably, I don't know how old, I mean, to me, she was like, I was 19. And, you know, if she was 25 and she was European, she was very sophisticated. So her and Patty were kind of my best friends and they had no relationship with each other and were very separate. Larissa, I didn't see her for many years because she ran in like, you know, kind of haute couture circles and whatever in the 80s and 90s where I wasn't like, you know, I was very busy with other stuff. And our paths just never crossed until the early 2000s. And when I met her, I was so excited to see her and then very quickly realized that she sort of remembered me, but that drinking and drugs and time had really erased a lot of her memory, mm -hmm. you know? And I don't have the memory I had pre-50, I'll say that, when I was really known as the memory of my generation. Like I remembered conversa full conversations and who said what to who and who was where and what and all that. And I realize now how much of my memory has been uh, quieted. But I mean, also that has to do with the fact that I tour so much and I meet so many people, you know, that does have an effect on your older memories. But at any rate, I don't know what I was answering, but something. Well, you were just talking about how, you know, you were comparing yourself to Patty and how she had family and support and everything. And that right. you didn't, is that part of the reason why you decide to stay in Europe? Because you, you, you didn't have anything really keeping you in New York? I think a couple of things were going on. One thing was that I'm somebody who forms family with people and my relationship with Jackie Curtis. Jackie Curtis had become, was a very important friend of mine. And Jackie had become very competitive with me. 
because I was starting to get reviewed in plays with Jackie. Jackie, Patty, and I were in a play together called Femme Fatale in 19, I think it might have been in June of 1970. Jackie just kind of went nuts, like just became really competitive with me. And that just really upset me. And I was pretty much feeling like, really, you can have it. Like, really, it's worth, is that what it's worth? Our, our friendship is worth, that's what it's worth to you? You know, like, fuck you. You know, so that was Max's Kansas City. Jackie brought me to Max's. Jackie brought me to Warhol. Jackie was my hero. You know, I was definitely Jackie's acolyte. Absolutely. But that really devastated me. I was reminding Danny Goldberg. I lived with Danny Goldberg, who, you know who that is? Mm -hmm. oh, you know who everybody is. So anyways, I lived with Danny Goldberg at that time. We lived on St. Mark's Place at 13 St. Mark's, and it was a really small apartment that I had found that cost $250 a month, which Danny paid for, which, you know, in 1969, for $250 a month, you could have a floor through on Bank Street, right? But of course, I had to be in the East Village. So I had found this apartment, and it was in this building, 13 St. Mark's Place, that was all stuccoed inside and looked like Spain. It was a very weird building. And I wanted to be in, I don't know, it's kind of slightly embarrassing, you know, the whole thing about this building. But at any rate, it was a very small apartment with like a tiny bathroom, tiny kitchen, a living room, and then a bedroom, right? So it was, a, it was a, an, an old railroad flat. We had two phones. We had a phone in the bedroom and we had a phone in the living room. And at one point, Tony and Gracia had called me and this was when th there was talk about moving Femme Fatale to another theater. And also it was the beginning of Pork that Tony and Gracia was going to make a play out of Andy Warhol's tapes. Tony had called me because Jackie was upset with me. Danny was on the other phone and I was in the living room and Tony was saying, well, Jackie feels that you're copying her. And I remember Danny yelling into the phone in the other room. What do you mean Penny's copying Jackie? Penny's a real girl, <laughs> you know? And that was a real reason to go. And also I'm an adventurous person. And once again, I'm timid. It's all in my head. I want to go, but I'm too scared to go really. And I go through this all the time, whenever I travel, that I'm just sure like, oh, something bad will happen if I go to China. <laughs> but then I go, right? But at any rate, you know, once I got to Amsterdam, it was my, it was my second flight. My first flight was from Boston to New York when I was 17. My second flight was from New York to, you know, Air Luxembourg. We stopped in Reykjavik. I laid down on the tarmac. I'm in Iceland, which I imagined was the top of the planet, you know, and then, you know, ended up in Amsterdam and it was very exciting. 
to be in a different culture. And I adore different cultures. So I had been in the East Village, 67, 68, 69, 70, and part of 71. So it was four and a half years, which was like a long time, you know. And during that time, I'd gone from being homeless on the street, living with drug addicts in shooting galleries, to doing theater, to being part of Andy Warhol's circle, to this very expansive Max's Kansas City Cafe Society, where I was exposed and met all kinds of people from you know every strata in society. And I was done, you know, but I was just playing. It was interesting because I'm kind of picked up where I was then right now. So 1971. So I was just interested in transforming myself into a kind of a glam design. I was like one of the first people in New York who wore vintage because my mother had saved all of her clothes from the 30s for me and 40s. And I had known as a child that I would have those clothes because we would visit them, you know, like once a year, my mother would like take something out and say, oh, when you're grown up, this will be back in fashion. So not only did I have all these clothes from my mother, but I had become a thrift shopper. In my teens, I was already looking for 30s and 40s clothes. So by the time I was 18, I was wearing all those clothes all the time, which made me one of the first people in New York wearing vintage. So I remember that like in 1970, I was plotting this stepping off of 30s and 40s Mm -hmm. into something more futuristic, like 50s. You know, like it was, it all revolved around silver satin pants and a silver satin shirt. This was like what I was seeing. And, but then I, I abandoned it. The first few months that I was in Amsterdam, I threw a girl whose name I'm not remembering right now, a Dutch girl. I understood sex appeal in a way that I hadn't understood it before. And I realized that I had sex appeal, which I hadn't understood before. And I was making a choice of whether I was going to go back to New York and do that. I mean, I had a conversation on the phone with Danny Goldberg where he was saying, because I had I had stopped working with Vaccaro in Amsterdam. He had like gone kind of crazy and I had left and I was living with this Dutch male hustler in Amsterdam and... Uh, Danny was like, you know, why aren't you coming back to New York? It's kind of interesting because it wasn't so much about our relationship, but about my career. Said to me, what about your career? And I I didn't know what he's talking about. I didn't realize I had a career. I thought I was going to create a career. I didn't understand that I, I didn't understand that I was already an it girl. I didn't get that. I didn't, I, I didn't understand So at any rate, I chose adventure. I chose the unknown. And I lived in Amsterdam for about 10 months with this guy, Renee. And we had a a shop uh, behind the palace 
in Centrum, in the center of Amsterdam. And we went to the Waterloo Plain every day to the flea market. And I love that, you know, and at that time you can find all kinds of 30s, 40s, 20s, all that Jugendstil. It was very much a post-war environment, you know, for five cents or 10 cents or 20 cents. You could find all these amazing chiffon 20s dress. I mean, it was crazy, you know, I mean, and that was polarizing for me. And plus, I loved the culture. I loved learning a new language. I loved the food and I loved the canals and I loved, you know, Amsterdam in 1971 was an amazing place, very different from what it would become. And then life has always intervened. My relationship with Renee sort of deteriorated as we lived together and I started to speak more Dutch and he spoke more English and found out we really didn't have much in common. And then a girl who I still know, Caroline Henry, who's a jewelry designer, I had met her on the plane from New York. She had sat next to me on the plane and she walked into my shop one day and she was like, you really seem unhappy. And I was like, wow. And she told me to come and visit her in Dusseldorf where she was living. And I went there, that kind of marked the end of my relationship with Renee. And then my sister came, she had just graduated from high school. It was Caroline's idea that we should all go to Spain where her mother and stepfather had a hotel on the island of Formentera. And I had been told to go to a place called Formentera uh, by my friend, Richard Hanneman through my friend, Sandy Sawyer, who came into the back room at Max's shortly before I left for Amsterdam and said, Richard says, come to Formentera. But I didn't know where that was. And I didn't even know this was the same Formentera. But in the end, Caroline didn't go. And my sister and I did go. Her parents took one look at my sister and I and like, didn't want to have any part of it in our 30s dresses and red lipstick and we ended up staying in Formentera and my sister stayed for two months and I just didn't leave because that's what I do. I tend to not leave. I go somewhere and I don't leave. And so I ended up staying on Formentera and Lorraine, you know, went back to Amsterdam and then eventually went back to New York. And I stayed there for about four years, including one of those years was in Mallorca. And then from Mallorca, I had stumbled into drinking with sailors because I was going to save, I was living with this. I had met these puppeteers who did puppet theater and I'd gotten involved with them in Mallorca and they were very, very poor. And then I found out that you could drink with sailors and make like $500 a week, which is a lot of money in 1973. So I went to do that in this very altruistic spirit, but then it turned out that the puppet people, Pep Gomez and his wife, Sarah, who were in their forties and they were communists. And there I was drinking with sailors and I brought a sailor home and they went nuts. Like they went completely Yankee go home nuts. And so then I got thrown out of there. And then I ended up going and following this sailor to France and I, entered into like a period of like short-lived drinking with sailors and being in that demi-monde of 
prostitution and bar girls. And But then it was a case of mistaken identity where the police in Mallorca thought that I was dealing drugs to the USS Forrestal. And I was approached first to be arrested. Then they figured out that I was too young to be that person. And then they wanted me to go undercover for them. And then I realized I couldn't go back to Formentera uh, because everybody I knew was basically dealing hash. I managed to outwit them and went home, you know, just left. That's how I got back to America. I mean, nothing planned, never a choice. And I think that's one of the hallmarks of my life is I've never chosen anything. I didn't choose to become a performance artist. I didn't I didn't choose to live in New York. I didn't, I didn't choose anything, you know, I just did what was, my life has been dictated by survival and I've tried to make the best of it. But, you know, now that I'm older, I'm very aware of that, you know? So the most choice I've had in my life has been in the last decade to choose what I'm doing. But even so, I don't tend uh, to prioritize, you know, I tend to like just do what's next or what's, you know, the squeakiest. Once you got back to, well, a couple, I think you were back in America for a couple of years before you did your first thing. You obviously chose to write your first. Right. Well, what happened was that I came back to New York and went home, went to my mother's yeah. and actually lived there for a few months because I came back to New York in 19 at the end of 74 and I didn't like it I didn't I didn't get it you know I I wasn't drawn to it I went home and then I met somebody in Hartford Connecticut a guy who was doing leather leather work like making bags and sandals and stuff like that it was in, an interesting guy named Bodan Sukhopar, who was a Ukrainian immigrant. He was born in a refugee camp in Germany, who was a year older than me. He had land and a cabin in Maine. And he wanted, now he met me, he wanted to go there. So we went there in January of 1975. And I found myself, you know, living with no heat, no running water, no electricity in the middle of the woods in Maine. And I January, did that. that's very cold. It was very cold. And I had lived like that in Spain. It wasn't that cold, <laughs> you know, without snow anyways. So, you know, I've lived off the grid a couple of times, learned everything about it, and then um, started doing theater in Maine with a ragtaggle group of, of artists from all over the country different artists like they were filmmakers or painters or poets or whatever they were but we ended up doing theater together and then I took over a theater and I ran a theater in Maine for the town of Pittsfield Maine and then this person Bodan died in a tragic canoe accident and that also marked my life in a very intense way because somehow his family managed to blame me. So it was a it was a very harrowing period that coincided with my Saturn return. And it was a very harsh year. And then I got involved with this band, Peter Galway Review, 
became kind of like a professional fan, kind of insinuated myself into the band, doing support stuff for them and going around with them, like just becoming like part of the band. And then I got involved with the, with the piano player, John Hardy. And then they came to New York and I came to New York with them in 1979. I was showing John the East Village and La Mama when I ran into Ellen Stewart and Ellen Stewart was like, oh my God, it's Penny Arcade. What can this mean for the future of theater? That's what she said to me. And I was sort of gobsmacked. I didn't even think she would remember me. So then she ended up asking me to come back to perform in La Mama's 20th anniversary in 1981 to recreate my role in Ken Bernard's play Nightclub with the Playhouse of the Ridiculous. And that's and that brought me back to New York in 1981. And John immediately fired me because he was, you know, he used to pick on me. He bullied me. And this was part of our relationship from when I was 18. He did a lot of damage to my already pretty fragile self-confidence, but he also triggered my belligerence. So it was a pretty weird combination. Like, so he gave me a lot of, there would always be approval for me going beyond my limitation performance-wise from him. So it was an interesting, it was a very psychologically such a weird mind fuck with him because I think I was one of the people in the playhouse, even among people much older than I was, who I conceptually understood what he was doing. And in the end, by the time I was in my late 40s, he would acknowledge me as his protege, which was also pretty weird, you know, but he was very damaging. I mean, he was a cruel person and he was crazy. He was also a genius, but he was really uh, aggressive and undermining and attacking person. No refuge, you know. I think my life could be defined as survival and reinvention and transformation in the face of survival and lack of support. It's a curious uh, psychological profile. I mean, everything for me is about synchronicity, about I accept that I chose, I chose this, my soul chose this path. And I'm really trying to be kind to myself because I am, I am, I've internalized a lot, you know, as we all do, internalized a lot of the abuse that was, and if not abuse, a lot of the rejection or criticism that was kind of played out on me. Sometimes I have to like really take myself in hand and go like, hold up here, you know, and kind of reparent myself. You know, even now, last night, I had a lot of that last night, you know, I've been on, I've been on this, <laughs> my creativity gloms on to the weirdest things and my, my creativity glommed on to the Zara sale. And I became just obsessed in the past month with the Zara sale. And it's funny because my ability to reframe things. So my exercise, literally my exercise has been running 
from store to store looking for specific things that are on sale, you know? And so like literally walking, getting my 15,000 steps in because I'm going, you know what I mean? And could I do this in any other way? No, I could not, you know? always trying to put my damage to the to the aid of my goals finding things that i that i love that you know at zara even though you know my my actual taste is for clothes that are in the thousands of dollars i'm like you know find there's some quite good design at zara you know so finding things that cost $35 buying them and then looking to find it for $10 in the sale and then sending the $35 one back. I mean, it's kind of pathetic. I mean, really. But I think that's who I was as an 11 to 13-year-old. And I'm kind of in that same, I was obsessed with clothing and clothes and and I'm there again. And that's my, that's, you know, and I keep saying like, you know, I have all these art projects that I should be doing, but I'm doing this. And I'm almost at the end of it because it's at the end of the sale. So it's pretty funny. You know, it's, it's funny, like with what I choose to spend my time doing. Well, you said that you've been really very creative for a large chunk of the pandemic. So I think that. No, but what I realize is that the, the shopping is connected in to my PTSD also mm-hmm giving me the opportunity to go back to who I was as an 11 year old where that started because I as an 11 year old I started shoplifting clothes like I would go to all of and we had in this small city that I was from which like basically was one main street we had like 10 clothing stores one department or two department stores but then three clothing stores. As a matter of fact, I was thinking about this guy, Anthony J. Rao, R-A-O. He had a, you know, eponymously named store, ladies clothing store. It only now occurs to me that he must have been a gay man, but I shoplifted there and got caught and then had to, you know, bring my mother there. And it was, you know, very embarrassing because it was very embarrassing for my mother. And he offered me a job. I mean, I didn't understand, I had no understanding of what that meant because I didn't have the orientation as a 12 year old that I could go and help out there after school and get clothes. I, you know, I mean, it's like, in other words, I was so traumatized by getting caught, by embarrassing my mother that I couldn't even really hear what he was offering me. So this period now, this obsession with shopping is giving me a way to, to revisit that period of my life. So, so I've said to everybody that my 70s are going to be my most glamorous period ever. And it's funny too, because I've gone back to singing in my show. So what I stopped doing in 1989, I am back to doing now. And my joke about it to Steve, my collaborator is, oh, everybody, you know, wanted me to be a rock star in the 70s. I said, I thought they meant in my 70s. (laughs) It's been funny. It's been an interesting journey 
as you will see, I mean, I'm twice your age almost. Well, you're 37. I'm not, am I, I'm not quite, I'm a little bit less than twice your age. It goes by just really fast. It's like kind of staggering how fast it goes by. You should go on my Patreon because there's also, we put up this week, we put up my first show from 1986 wow. when I was 36. And it's all improvised and with my band and I'm doing characters and I'm singing. And it's a pretty, I mean, if you watch it and you know that I'm improvising, there's no rehearsal. It's so different from what anybody else in the East Village was doing in performance art. It's, I think you'd be quite fascinated to look at it. And also, um, by the way, on my Patreon, which is by donation, like $2 gets you in. There's also the Lori Side Biography Project, which is all the interviews that we do where we edit me out. There's an amazing interview with Lee Brewer, who just died from Mabu Mines, mm -hmm. that he said was the best interview that ever been done with him. I think you'd, be, you'd get a lot out. I mean, there's amazing people on there. Betty Dodson. And How did you come to start doing that? The Patreon? The Lower East Side Biography uh, Project. I had been approached by uh, Rick Youngers, who was a um, public access TV activist. And public television in New York, Manhattan Neighborhood Network, was trying to bring artists into public access TV to, to kind of up the quality of the programming. And he had asked me to, if I wanted to do something, and I didn't. But then I got the idea that, oh, I could, there was a training component to it. And I thought, oh, I could train artists who are kind of my age, because I've always been very technologically forward. I've always used video and, you know, I was an early adapter to online. I've been online since 1993. I've worked with computers since the mid eighties and word processors and stuff like that. And um, so I thought, oh, I'll teach people like other artists like me, like Edgar Oliver and to use, you know, to use video and so they can document their work and blah, blah. None of them were interested. So then we decided to open it up to young people. I was very aware of how people were disappearing because of AIDS and everything else, old age. So I wanted to collect the source material of these people to preserve this history. And so Steve and I started doing that. And that's how it started. You know, we've never had real funding. I mean, neighborhood Manhattan Neighborhood Network would like give us like $1,500 and we'd buy a camera. But now, you know, I'm very interested. It's such an amazing project and we have such amazing materials that I'm really interested in trying to get a grant from the Ford Foundation or someone to try to do it full time, you know, so we can, you know, do a as soon as one can. I mean, you know, because of COVID, it's hard to go. We did our last interview, in-person interview on March 12th. Then I was doing Facebook Live and a lot of it was interviewing people over the phone publicly. And that was getting taped, you know, as part of the biography project. But, you know, I mean, obviously not the best quality sound or anything. So, you know, as soon as one can go back to interviewing people in person, I'd like to finish. And plus all that work needs to be digitized and preserved. 
So I, I need to do that. Um, we need to do that. You know, I've always been very productive. You know, I'm no slouch, even though I'm the laziest person in the world. Not quite as lazy as Fran Leibowitz. She and I are, are similar in a lot of ways. I'm five months older than her, and I'm always kind of amazed by the similarities between us. A large part of it are generational and then dispositional. The Lower East Side Biography Project is an oral history project, but it is about, it's very specific. It's about self-individuation. Mm-hmm. It's about becoming. It's about, I'm very curious. I'm curious about how I became who I am because I tell people all the time, you know, I am not, you know, who I am today is not who I was when I was 37, for instance. Yeah. I mean, the seeds were there and they could have, you know, been acted upon or not acted upon. It's so inspiring when you hear somebody's story, you know, and I'm sure, you know, that different things I've said in this particular interview have resonated for you in your own private inner narrative, you know. And in giving you the interview, I've also understood things about myself because as we know from modern neuroscience, you know, we, we learn by speaking, you know, we understand Mm -hmm. by speaking things, you know, more than by thinking. Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Penny Arcade. Let me know if I should have a second follow-up episode with Penny covering her creative process and plays. Please head to our new website to see images from throughout our career, some video clips, as well as a short article. See you next week.